By day, the Forest of Dean is a welcoming place with an enchanting and unique character of its own. But, as evening draws into night, the mysterious forest takes over, and in hushed voices, foresters tell tales of strange happenings and uncanny places. The Reading the Forest podcast. The stories behind the stories. Episode 3. The Haunted Forest. I'm Dr Jason Griffiths. I'm Dr Roger Deeks. In this series, we're uncovering some of the stories that lie behind the Forest of Dean's rich literary heritage. And in this episode, draw yourself a little closer. There's a slight chill in the air. That's right. We're looking at the stories behind just some of the stories of ghosts, haunted houses and spooky places here in the Forest of Dean. At the start, we heard the introduction to Sue Law's 1982 book, Ghosts of the Forest of Dean. It's full of local accounts of ghostly figures, strange noises and unexplained goings-on. And in almost every case, Sue Law lays out the historical events that may well have inspired them. Yes, and it's one of many investigations of paranormal events produced over the last 20 years or so, some of which have inspired poets and authors to set their stories in the scowls, glades, castles and great old houses of the forest. So, if you are easily spooked or like those spine-tingling moments, the Forest of Dean is the place to be. From the first Victorian Gothic epics to recent films, the Forest of Dean has become the Forest of Doom, a place where you can expect all sorts of spectral beings to pop out of the woodland. In this episode, we're not going to be trying to explain what it is that people see or experience when they report having had a supernatural encounter. Believers in the paranormal will have their own explanations, and those turning to science will have different ones. We're going to be looking instead at how Forrester Dean authors and poets have used ghosts and hauntings in different ways in their writing. I've been speaking to two of our most successful contemporary Forrester Dean authors about their work that incorporates ghostly figures and hauntings. And as always, we'll be looking back to earlier Forrester Dean writers too. And we'll be asking, is there, as Sue Law suggested, something particular about the Forrester Dean that lends itself to stories of the past haunting the present. Now, to ease us in, before we get to the really nerve-jangling stories, let's kick off with some tales where all is not quite what it seems. Part 1. A case of mistaken identity. What better place to begin our investigation into ghost stories than a haunted house, an old inn to be precise, at the very centre of the Forest of Dean, sitting alone amongst the trees. The Speech House. The Speech House, built in 1676 as a permanent home for the special courts administering the woodland laws of the Forest of Dean. To this day, the Speech House retains its verdurous courtroom, where the Queen's forest officials continue to meet four times a year. 
Enlarged in 1883, this imposing and iconic stone building has, since the mid-19th century, also been used as an inn, and today is the home of one of the forest's best-known hotels and restaurants. There's a real sense of history in the speech house. Huge fireplaces, hunting trophies, swords, armour, the fine old paintings on the walls. There's the verderer's courtroom and four-poster beds in some of the bedrooms. Back in 1886, it was chosen by Charles F. Grindrod for the setting of his book, Tales in the Speech House. The book sees a group of travellers stranded at the inn, a huge snowfall making the roads impassable. Whilst during the day they explore the surrounding forest on foot, to pass away the time each evening they gather around the fire to tell stories. Each tells a story based on an incident in their own lives and one of the stories is actually set in the Forest of Dean and it comes right at the end of the book. It's told by the landlord of the inn and it's called The Ghost of the Speech House. The landlord tells of how he and his wife and their old manservant came up from Somerset to take on the running of the inn. Arriving late at the deserted speech house, they unload and, exhausted, they're soon off to bed. Wake up, John. Quick, man, wake up. There's thieves in the house. What? Come, wake up, John. Don't you hear the noise now yourself? All right, all right. Why? I declare, if it isn't in the drawing room where all the best things are locked up. John, the landlord, wakes up their manservant, Bill, and the two of them set off for the drawing room to investigate. However did him get in, Meister? The door's locked still, same as we left in last night. Hush, Bill. I fancy I can hear them. It must have been through the window. Unlocking the door, the pair creep into the room. But no sooner have they entered than a mysterious white shape is on them and knocks out their candle. I tell ye what it is, Meister. I be... Most afeard him be a ghost, and if so, nothing you nor I can do will do any good with him. Better let him alone, Moister. Let's go back to bed again. What is this dreadful white apparition? Well, after much knockabout goings-on, the landlord and his man finally corner the ghost of the speech house. And it's not a ghost after all, or a thief, but just a small white barn owl, somehow accidentally shut into the old drawing room. An unfamiliar, empty old inn in the dead of night at the heart of a huge forest. Tired after a long journey and moving in, you hear noises and your mind starts racing. Now the landlord also tells us that just before his wife woke him up that night, he was in the middle of a terrible dream. Surrounded by huge, terrifying beech trees that were closing in on him. The trees were laughing and making faces and he was sure he would be crushed. For the travellers stranded at the speech house, their host, the landlord, is their knowledgeable guide to the Forest of Dean. But his story remembers that time when he first arrived, in a strange and unfamiliar place, surrounded by what felt to him to be sinister, oppressive and threatening woods. No surprise that in a mood, perhaps bordering on paranoia, that he, and in particular his manservant Bill, irrationally turned to the supernatural for an explanation of the strange white shape they encounter. 
Charles Grindrod was writing at a time when the ghost story was at its peak as a popular literary form, and he uses many of its familiar tropes, and those from the Gothic novel too. A huge old empty building in the middle of nowhere, things that go bump in the night, and your candle, your one last grip on the rational visible world, blown out, you're plunged into darkness. So, this is shaped like a ghost story, but the ghost in this ghost story is not a ghost at all. Just a year after Grindrod's Tales in the Speech House was published, local author S.M. Crawley Bovey published the first of her Dean Forrest sketches, a collection of short stories inspired by the history of her childhood home, Flaxley Abbey. Sibella Mary Crawley Bovey, 1850 to 1911. Born at the former Cistercian Abbey of Flaxley in the Forest of Dean, she was the daughter of the fourth Baronet Barrow. Whilst her two volumes of Dean Forest sketches drew on the extensive historical records held at her family home, she also wrote children's stories, numerous journal articles and two novels. One of her stories, The Grey Lady of Woodside, seems to have a ghost story element. It's set during the reign of Henry VIII. A mysterious figure, sometimes glimpsed in the woods near Little Dean, is believed to be the ghost of Alice Kingston, late wife of Sir William Kingston, constable of the Tower of London, who was soon to be the new owner of Flaxley Abbey. All the ingredients, then, of another fine ghost story? But this story is less concerned with the supernatural than with the very earthly machinations of its characters. After many twists and turns, we eventually discover that the figure in the woods is Alice Kingston, but she is very much alive. She's living in hiding in the woods. Just like in The Ghost of the Speech House, Crawley Bovey's story sets up expectations that we're in the realm of the supernatural when really it's the story of a family seeking to escape its powerful and malign patriarch. A century later, the appearance of the Grey Lady in the Woods returns in a poem from the pen of Forest dialect poet Keith Morgan. Here's an extract of Keith reading his poem in 1985, recorded by publisher and owner of the Forest Bookshop, Doug McLean. There's many a story told and ghost yarns be best, I decide. The scariest tale of them all is a Ralph and a lady in grey. His taste was simple in view, and to seek both freedom and fun, he'd have a vermile stroll to the pub and a vermile stroll back again. Ralph has a terrifying encounter late one night walking through the woods. An apparition appears out of the mist. As he gazed into the night, a sight met his bleary-eyed stare. In the midst of the fog and the gloom, a ghostly grey lady was there. For Ralph, he come out in the sweat, and both knees trembled with fear, as the ghostly figure in grey came nearer and nearer and nearer. Now, we know it's Willem's mother who's dropped off his dinner to keep him going through the night shift. But poor Ralph liked to drink. A lot. And his befuddled brain thinks that she is a ghost. He runs home, having learned his lesson, not to drink less, but from now on to take the bus home from the pub instead of walking through the woods. Plenty of stories then based on mistaken identity. Ghosts that aren't ghosts at all. But what about those stories where the authors don't let us off so easily? What about the stories that aim to send a genuine chill down your spine, 
the sort of thing you might not want to read alone in the house as the light begins to fade, the stories where the ghosts can't be explained away. Part 2. Restless Spirits In her 1982 book, Sue Law describes Little Dean as the most haunted village in the Forest of Dean. It's one of the oldest settlements in the forest, on a ridge high above the River Severn, it grew at the centre of a network of trade routes linking the nearby port of Newnham on Severn to the forest interior and further afield. It once boasted a market hall and a preaching cross, and in medieval times there were iron forges in the village. Today it's a fairly quiet place surrounded by farmland, but it retains its 12th century church and several fine old houses, some of which date back to the 15th and 16th centuries. No surprise, perhaps, that with such a long and rich history, tales of ghosts and hauntings have grown up around several of the oldest houses in the village. And chief among these are tales attached to the house that looms over the village, Little Dean Hall. Little Dean Hall, also known as Dean Hall. The current front of the house was remodelled in the 1830s, but parts of the building date back to at least the 16th century. In 1664, it was sold to Thomas Perk of nearby Abenhall, who moved to the house and set about enlarging the estate. The house remained in the Perk family well into the 19th century. In the 1980s, remains of a Roman temple were found on the site, leading to a claim that this was one of the oldest permanently occupied homes in the country. Sue Law recounts several ghost stories associated with Little Dean Hall, and each one opens a door into some fascinating moments in its history. Sue Law wasn't the first to write about hauntings at the hall. John Bellow's book, A Week's Holiday in the Forest of Dean, first published in 1886, notes that during the Civil War, two officers were killed in the house, and, writes Bellows, it is of course said that the room is haunted. A skirmish did take place there in May 1644, and two royalist officers were killed. The Reverend Henry Nichols, writing in 1858, claimed he knew the exact spot too, by the corner of the fireplace in the dining room. But of all the stories attached to the hall, the murder of a slave boy, or the murder of a master by his slave, has echoed throughout the 20th century. Roger, have you heard these stories and the variations on this theme? Yes. There are several versions of a tragedy that sparked a ghostly apparition, all attributed to events that happened in the hall around the early 18th century concerning the Perk family. In one, the black slave boy is cruelly murdered by his master. In the other story, Charles Perk is accused of raping the sister of his servant. The servant promptly murdered Perk before being put to death himself. The servant's ghost is thought by some to haunt the hall to this day, and it has been reported to be carrying a candle. Now, interestingly, one of the earliest mentions of the story in print is when... In 1893, the Council of the Bristol and Gloucestershire Archaeological Society visited Little Dean Hall. In its report of the visit, the house is described as a snug little residence, redolent of ghost stories and legends of the Cromwellian War, a reference again to the Civil War and its supposed ghosts. But the visiting party 
is also told about. The legend of the murder of the black slave with a silver collar, whose portrait with his young master hangs in the room and whose ghost still haunts the house. This story of the ghost of the black boy is referenced again in 1912 by Mabel K. Woods in her History of Nearby Newnham on Severn and a year later by Arthur O. Cook in his book on the Forest of Dean. But a fictional twist is given to A Slave Story in 1899 by S.M. Crawley Bovey in her story Timely Legacies, set in 1752. It's a story of a family inheritance of a plantation and it features characters Pompey and Dina, two freed slaves and now servants brought to Little Dean from a Caribbean plantation. And in many ways this is a perfect fit for the slave murdering his master revenge story because it transpires that the owner of the house has been a plantation owner had raped Dinah in Jamaica and Pompey, her brother, had carried a burning grudge that ultimately led to him killing George Skip, his master. A perfect fit for the more elaborate ghost story and indeed there was a George Skip who died in 1804 and a prominent Skip family in Little Dean. Except Crawley Bovey's story is set not in Little Dean Hall but in Little Dean Grange. Also known as the courthouse, it was for some time at the head of the Flaxley estate. Sadly, it fell into disrepair and was demolished in the last century. Now, this is such a good fit. Could it be the origin of the Little Dean Hall story? Was Crawley Bovey's gothic story moved about half a mile up the road from the Grange to Little Dean Hall? Roger, do you think this might be the actual source of the story, the inspiration for the ghost of the black boy at Little Dean Hall? Is this in fact the story behind this particular ghost story? Possibly. It certainly added a juicy version, but the story of the ghost of the black boy had become firmly lodged in local legend. And more recently, it was given a huge boost when the house briefly became a visitor attraction in the 1980s and 90s. Resident ghosts made for good publicity. Now there's more to this than at first meets the eye and we'll be digging deeper into it in a moment. But it's this story of the ghost of the boy at Little Dean Hall that's at the heart of one of the finest recent novels set in the Forest of Dean, Sugar Hall by Tiffany Murray published in 2014. A brilliant story that demonstrates how this local legend lends itself to a contemporary gothic and ghostly interpretation. It's 1955 and recently widowed Lilia Sugar finds herself moving into the crumbling country pile that is Sugar Hall. She's with her daughter Saskia and sole surviving male heir to the hall, son Dieter. But who is the mysterious boy that befriends Dieter and what has he got in store for his new friend? I recently spoke down an occasionally crackly line to Sugar Hall's author, Tiffany Murray. I started by asking Tiffany how she set about writing this ghost story. This sounds quite disingenuous, but I didn't consciously sit down and think I'm going to write a ghost story. Um, I wanted to write a story about stories that I had heard as a child at Goodrich Primary School 
told to me by kids who came over the, the River Wye um, from, the, from the edge of the forest, uh, but they would tell me stories of this, this ghost boy. So in terms of technique and writing about ghosts, I think the only thing that I was wary of was, I suppose you could call it the woo-woo factor, of not making something that is not entirely believable to everybody in any way unbelievable on the page, if you see what I mean. Um, so I wanted to make him real. Possibly now I can see that I use tools of, mag of magical realism where what writers do is, is they make that unbelievable thing so real, so, so embedded in, is in naturalism uh, that a reader is forced to believe it rather than, than it being wispy or, or not, not graspable in any sense. So I think I think that was that was it. In in Sugar Hall, the the ghost boy is is a real boy. He you know takes real footsteps. He 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 speaks real words when he does speak, and he does real things. So yes, that that's what I tried to focus on. <laughs> Hopefully, it comes across. Yeah, it does brilliantly. I think it's a fantastic book. Having had that described, I can really uh, get a sense of what you were doing there. But you mentioned uh, being uh, primary school and hearing the story. You wrote a number of novels which were quite different. So what inspired you to write this story? I wanted to try and address how the inheritance of slavery is still written on the land and how it might figure in a, in a very limbo time of the 1950s. That's when the, the novel is set, it's set in 1955. I was doing a PhD in Caribbean literature at the time um, when I started to try and write short stories around this boy of Little Dean Hall. So all of that information I was getting, uh, I was in America, NYU, from these classes and working with this amazing um, Bayesian poet, Kamau Brathwaite, it all, it all fed into the book, trying to work out what the plantation meant in an English landscape. Uh, and what we have here, where we live with the Severn River and with with Bristol, you can imagine, you know, the ships coming into Bristol. And I didn't want to write something that was historical fiction in that sense, uh, set, set too long ago. That's where the, the impetus really came. I wanted to write something that was completely different to what I had written before. You mentioned being in uh, in New York and you were you were thinking about the book and constructing it. What what research did you do prior to writing the book? Did you did you research the history of Little Dean Hall, the slavery in the UK, and what had happened? I didn't do any specific research in terms of Little Dean Hall, apart from years before writing it. I think it was like 1999 or something. I actually went there and visited it. I remember these two people who were staying there and they did virgin balloon holidays and there were lots of virgin, um, you know, iconography around the place, little cards and things. It was very odd. Um, so I walked, I walked it and they had all these little booklets of information. And I remember seeing a painting. It wasn't an original painting. It was a, a you know, some sort of facsimile painting of, of the boy, but what I did research as I was writing it 
was the 19, the 1950s in in Britain, and the the novel is punctuated also um, by the events around the arrest and the execution of Ruth Ellis, who was the last woman to be executed in England, in Britain. And so that certainly was research that I did. And I went to the uh, Museum of Slavery uh, in Liverpool. Um, I did a little bit of research there. Uh, I wanted to to find artifacts because between each chapter there, there are, there's either a, a, a drawing or some sort of article about artifacts. I, want, I wanted to layer all these things in. So that's really when my research came in. Uh, the ghost, the haunting, uh, are these a sort of metaphor for past trauma that hasn't properly been addressed by which I'm thinking about slavery, slave money, um, and the other characters in the book, because they all seem to be haunted by their own personal ghosts as well. Yes, the the mum in the book, Lilia, she she's um, German Jewish, and she came on the last Kinder transport in thirty nine, and she's I suppose in some sort of limbo, uh, and has been since she arrived in in Britain and got married, and had a pretty loveless marriage and had her two children, Saskia and Dita. So yes, there is definitely that trauma. There is definitely those, you know, those big inheritances, post-Holocaust Europe and the inheritance with slave, uh, of slavery that, that you know, it's, all, it's, it's always there, it's written into our, into our DNA, whatever part of the plantation we happen to occupy. Um, but really, what takes over when you write anything after thinking about all those grand things is is really these are just characters being human on the page whether they're ghosts or not um and i think that takes over and hopefully it becomes a little a, a little bit more real but but yes ghosts are so nebulous and angry and there's a there's a sort of odd violence to them that i think they are i think they are unresolved grief or unresolved anger. And that, that's certainly how the ghost in Sugar Hall acts, even though hopefully a reader would have sympathy for him, I hope. <laughs> All was gray, as gray as the moth wings that filled his mouth. That was until the child spoke to him, until that sugar child had him appear it was a command after all. The child's blood had called to his in little seductive whispers. And so he had appeared by the window in the woodshed. He had appeared and he had tingled and sparked and the sugar child had fled. After all his years, decades, almost two centuries of wandering, this time he thought he had simply stopped, disappeared, and that was an end to it. But the child had come and he'd had no choice. He knew it would be such a long and hard battle because he had fought it before. He knew he had to remember. He didn't know what he was, not yet. Was he born here? He knew he had died here. For now, that was enough.
In truth, he wanted to lie down, to stop and let the memories fall away like clothes in a fire. He would prefer that to be nothing. But the child had called, and now he was walking through this wood, his wood. As he walked, nettles tickling his legs, birds stopped their song, foxes hid, squirrels spat and retreated to their drays. The boy began to spit. He stopped beneath an oak, touched the rough bark, and the old life thumped a fierce thump up from the great gods of the earth as he spat out his moths and his cobwebs, as he spat out centuries, or two at least. He spat out horsehair, twigs and bitter almonds, rat poison, cowrie shells and Indian ink. He spat and he spat until his voice came. The boy hummed first. Words were too many, too much, so the boy hummed and he walked, bluebells turning to dry crunch at his steps. He had once hidden in this wood. That was so much time ago because he had forgotten the trinkets that are days, months and years. Now he was the wood. This boy had seen the oaks fall for navy ships. He had seen rats crawl up from the wood floor and eat a sleeping man. He had watched a child disappear into the fern and shimmer into nothing. He had seen cat's eyes dance in the needle tips of the firs. He had seen a girl bury a living, wailing thing at the foot of a stream, and he had watched a weeping willow grow there. He had heard bombs tick-tock in bottomless quarries and plump babies cry from rooks' nests. He had seen men fight with hands, with swords, with knives, with poison, with guns and with paper. This boy had seen men kiss women and men kiss men. He had seen women kiss men and women kiss women. This boy had crawled inside an acorn. He had made men dance until their legs cracked. Once, too long ago, when he was proper flesh and proper bone, when he had hidden and whimpered in the wet hollow of an ancient oak, he had seen a silver deer with the pinkest eyes dance on its hind legs had seen men dig a grave for his mother while she still lived. He had seen her tied to an ancient yew and whipped and cut in the red garden. This boy had seen himself swinging from a rope coiled on an oak branch, his own neck snapped. This boy had watched these woods for all of his time. The smell of wild garlic tickled him and he walked on. That was author Tiffany Murray finishing off our conversation with an extract from her 2014 novel Sugar Hall, published by Seren Books. That is a cracking, multi-layered novel, and as Tiffany says, it's much more than a simple ghost story. But getting back to the story of the ghost at Little Dean Hall, rather than Tiffany's Sugar Hall, the story of the ghost seems to be inspired by pretty dramatic events possibly even the murder of a young member of the local gentry by a black servant. Well, yes, exactly. But though Charles Perk did die relatively young, he was just 23 years old when he died in 1744, we don't know of any murders or unexplained deaths that occurred there at that time. Now, that 
is odd, Roger, because you would think there would be a record of a, of a crime like that. So what about that painting at the hall that the Gloucestershire Archaeologist Group referred to in their report back in 1893? That does seem to provide some sort of credibility for the story. Well, the ghost is described as the black boy, and this is a direct link to that portrait of Charles Perk as a child at the hall. The painting's called The Red Boy. Charles is dressed in a dazzling red frock coat in the picture. It was painted by a Dutch artist who specialised in selling the landed gentry flattering portraits of themselves, and as such it has two interesting adornments. The first is a pet squirrel on a chain, which was a popular motif in pictures of the time, rather than necessarily an actual pet belonging to Charles. The second is the figure of a young black boy in a blue tunic of the same age as Charles, holding a basket of flowers. Chillingly, and again, a popular motif in pictures of the time and denoting status, the black boy is wearing a silver collar. He was a slave. So the black boy in the painting may have been added to the scene, much like the squirrel, simply to enhance the perception of wealth and status of Charles and his family to anyone who saw the picture. But did the Perk family actually own any slaves? Well, if we go back to Crawley Bovey's short stories, we would find that they were a mixture of fact and fantasy and that she gives us an insight into the homes of the landed gentry in the area. When she wrote, and please note, in the language of her day, the following, one or more Negroes with silver collars bearing the master's name formed in those days a usual part of every establishment, and Pompey of the Grange was a well-known character in Little Dean, we can believe this was based on real recollections since her family had been at Flaxley for generations and lived through the era of slavery. So, although any particular slave interests of the Perks are unknown, many of England's landed gentry did invest in plantations and through this they owned slaves. Now, they might never visit the plantations themselves, but they were earning income from the proceeds of slavery. We also know that at the time, African slaves were not bought or sold in Britain, but were brought by masters and plantation owners from the Caribbean, usually to carry out domestic roles in Britain. And in 1772, a legal judgment prohibited slavery in England. We know that there were black people with a history of being slaves in Gloucestershire, sometimes described as servants. And interestingly, in Little Dean, a man described as a black called Romiak was buried there in 1782. This ghost story then of the black boy at Little Dean opens the door onto a part of British and Forest of Dean history that we might otherwise not see. Roger, beyond the historical fiction writing and ghost stories, what was the actual legacy of slavery for the Forest of Dean? Well, that became clear when the anti-slavery movement began in earnest in Britain in the 1780s. It wasn't until 1833 that the Slavery Abolition Act was passed. But sickeningly, in order to get the act passed, there was an agreement that slave owners should be compensated for the 
loss of their property. Edward Prothero, Bristol Sheriff, Mayor and MP, a prominent merchant venturer and plantation owner, was typical of the entrepreneurs exploiting coal and iron in the Forest of Dean in the early 19th century. He was awarded over £17,000 for the loss of his 642 slaves on plantations in Jamaica, St Vincent and Trinidad. At the time, that was a vast sum and it coincided with his investments in the growth of the forest town of Cinderford, donations to the church and his financing local schooling. There is no hint that the source of his wealth, slavery, made him any less desirable as an investor at the time. OK, so just for a moment, looking back to the story of the ghost of the black boy, the slave boy at Little Dean Hall, we have no direct evidence at the moment of an actual boy beyond the one depicted in the painting. That's right. And if you think about it, why, if he really had killed Charles Perk, would the family have continued to hang a portrait that depicted their son's killer on their living room wall? But let's remember, through the picture, subsequent viewers have seen a ghostly glimmer of a terrible past. Reading the Forest The Stories Behind the Stories Tiffany Murray's novel is very much played out in and around the malevolent Sugar Hall, haunted by its spirit, the boy, a symbol of an unresolved, troubling history. The story of a haunted house is a familiar one, of course, whether it's an old cottage or somewhere on a grander scale, such as Little Dean Hall or the Speech House. But what about the stories that are tied not to buildings but places? Ghosts that instead haunt the landscape. In literature, are these two a metaphor for how the past, its story etched into the landscape, haunts us in the present? Part 3. A Spectral Landscape one of the Forest of Dean's most prolific and successful authors is Andrew Taylor, a master of fiction writing. He was recently awarded the Historical Writers Association prestigious Crown Award for his novel The King's Evil. And he's won numerous other awards for his detective fiction too. His much-loved Lidmouth series was set in a fictional region of England inspired by the Forest of Dean and the surrounding area. He's also written a number of short stories in the ghost story or gothic tradition, one of which was set in the Forest of Dean. In 2016, this story, The Scratch, was published with two others in his collection, Fireside Gothic. I spoke to Andrew recently about his ghost stories and about the Forest of Dean and its landscape. First, though, I started by asking Andrew what he felt were the differences between the Gothic genre and that of the ghost story. I think the thing about the Gothic novel or the Gothic story as it emerged in the late 18th century with the castle of Otranto, that sort of thing, um, is that it's, it has a lot of clearly visible machinery. It's got ghosts in white sheets. It has... has suits of armour that clank around with nobody inside them. It has young ladies in 90s climbing stone staircases that lead nowhere, um, you know, holding a candle in their hand that is about to go out. You, you know where you are with the Gothic, in a sense. It's a very externally obvious form. Um, having said that, these are labels, and, and literary labels are so shifting in their meaning. It 
they will alter from day to day, from person to person. Whereas for me, anyway, the ghost story is something much more intimate and personal. Um, it's often tied to location, which is odd, because I think many ghost stories that, that one encounters in, in real life, when people say, say to you, oh, I saw a ghost once, the location is often key to that. And I think in, in its fictional variant too, the ghost story often has a, has a, lo a particular location attached to it. Um, the other thing is that it's, it's, it's very much inside the narrator's mind. And there is, it's a form that favours the first person narrative. Not always, but very often. Around those two ghost stories, which uh, I'm familiar with, which you've written, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the genesis of those stories. I'm particularly interested in how you've woven the big cat story, Afghanistan, guilt, and the symbolism of the, uh, the festering scratch together in the scratch. I think in general, almost all my ghost stories in, if I can use the word in a very general sense, have a very strong sense of location, a sense which is autobiographical. In other words, these are places that have, have gone quite deep with me. I wrote one, for example, about the town where I grew up, another a bit of coastland I know, I know very well and have done most of my life. And the third one, The Scratch, is about the Forest of Dean, where I've lived for nearly 40 years now. It started, I suppose, with a sense I've had, however well you know it, you never really know it completely. It's, it's a place of mystery. It's always a place of mystery because it's always changing. Um, at the time, um, we were hearing a lot in the media about our soldiers in Afghanistan and the, the effects that was having on them in the long term. And that led me to think about the effects of post-traumatic stress in a very, in a very general way, to try and imagine how, how it could unlock parts of your mind that you don't really want unlocked. And somehow that came together with a, a desire to write a story that was wholly and, and overtly set in the Forest of Dean. And that was it, really. Oh, the, no, I forget. Um, I haven't mentioned the cats, have I? Isn't it funny how many ghost stories end up with a cat in it? And I, I think that that is because um, the cat is in itself such a mis mysterious, separate animal. Um, we we it fits very very well into the um, the ambience of a ghost story. Cats we know them so well; they're domestic animals, or some of them are, and and yet they are they are so alien. They seem to live completely separate lives from ours, intersecting but separate. Extraordinary beasts, um, and of course, in the for here in the forest, we have these stories of these these black cats, huge black cats that that are occasionally sighted and photographed and. Um, and their paw marks are found, and so on. It's all I, all that fascinates me, and that that coalesced in, into the idea we could have a cat in this, um, uh, and also that there'd be an element of doubt as to whether the the domestic cat and the the big dangerous cat roaming the forest were one in the same. 
And the final ingredient to that was an old quarry we found near the Clannock Valley called Spion Cop, you know, after the South, Af South African war battle. And it's an abandoned quarry. It was never a very big quarry, but it's a, it's a very, um, I don't know, atmospheric place with a very, very sheer drop. There's a very sheer rock face where the rock's being carved, carved out. And there's a semicircular niche in it. And when we first found it, there was a buzzard nesting there. Um, gradually, this sense of abandonment and mystery it was all half overgrown and there were great lumps of rock lying around, huge lumps of rock as if somebody had lost interest in them, um, you know, half a century ago. And it, it just gradually coalesced into these other elements of what became the scratch. It's. I think all stories are like that. They are. They. They accrete. They're. They're the result of the accretion of a number of, you know, many many things: memories, observed things, facts, um, thoughts, dreams, and they all come together and they turn into a story. I talked myself round and round in circles. I had to do something. I couldn't stay in the car park forever. I couldn't go home either, so I went for a walk in the forest. Usually this was a calming thing to do, but not this time. I must have walked five or six miles. I followed paths I'd never followed before wherever I could, but I never quite lost myself. At first I walked slowly, but my pace gradually accelerated until I was walking as fast as I could without breaking into a run. And in this time, I saw one or two walkers and a solitary cyclist. I startled half a dozen fallow deer, which bounced into the undergrowth as if their legs were on springs. Yeah, but I couldn't throw off the sense that I was never, ever alone. If they say we know when we're being watched, that this is a half-buried characteristic from our primitive past as a species. Whoever or whatever was watching me was not doing it in a particularly menacing way. I didn't know how I knew this, but I did, but with a steady, unflinching attention. I set traps for whatever it was, assuming it existed. I doubled back without warning. I glanced from side to side, and occasionally I thought I might have glimpsed a dark shadow close to the ground, flickering among the trees. Oh, perhaps my conscience was pursuing me, or nemesis, but I haven't done anything wrong. That's excellent. I hope listeners will be uh, perhaps um, enthused to go and read Fireside Gothic, because there's two other really excellent short stories in there. But perhaps returning to the theme of the forest, the scratch is very specifically set in the Forest of Dean, and that's a very familiar place to you. Um, you've lived here most of your adult life, I think. Um, yeah. And I wondered, as a landscape, is there any idea of a particular fear or anxiety that comes from the Forest of Dean, do you think, generally? And I'm not talking just to the outsider, the urban visitor, but even those of us who live here. The forest is always a place of, of sanctuary, but also a place of something dark and mysterious and potentially dangerous. It always wears two faces. 
um, not just our forest, the forest of Dean, but the forest in folklore. It's a very, very old sense that the forest is a is a refuge and a resource on one hand, but it's also a place of monsters and of fear. It's bound up with this sense of the unknown, that you never quite know what's in there. You never quite know where you'll meet a boar these days, and I, I've got mixed feelings about the boar, as many of us have. But there's also marvels, you know, when you when you see a white stag suddenly or something in the middle of a ride, you, it's 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 as if you're you you've been inserted into a medieval tapestry. Uh, it, it's an extraordinary feeling. So it it is, I think, haunted, but it's haunted by things in the present and also in the sense of all those things that lay lie in the past. It, because of the covering of vegetation, it's very easy to lose sense, an overall sense of where you are or where you're going. And you can stumble on things, these half-abandoned mine workings or, or um, the remains of a railway bridge and the railway's completely vanished on either side of it. They are haunting things. They, they, you, they are obviously the, the product of, of, of enormous human ingenuity and resources and labour. Um, but somehow the forest has won in the end it's covered them over and they are they are gradually crumbling away and and being made to vanish again under the forest and who knows what's lying there it's i i find it's one of the most mysterious and and, and therefore wonderful places i know and i think in a way that's why um it works particularly well with a ghost story because a ghost stories are they're rooted in the end, in, in in what we don't know. You know, we live in a hard, rational world of, of, um, of empirical science, essentially. But like all scientific paradigms, it has its grey areas and the, the things we're not quite sure of yet. Um, and that's where the ghost story belongs. And I think, in some ways, that's where the feelings you get in the Forest of Dean belong too. Fascinating insights there from Andrew Taylor on ghost stories and on how the landscape of the Forest of Dean in particular seems to facilitate them. There's the woods themselves in the Forest of Dean and as Andrew mentioned, there's a long tradition in literature and folklore of forests being places of refuge on the one hand, but on the other, places of darkness, threat, danger just as we saw in that nightmare of the speech house landlord earlier. Even if you know the woods well, depending on your mood, the time of day, the weather, lots of different factors influence how you might feel walking into the darker, more densely wooded parts of the Forest of Dean. Forest author, poet and humorist Harry Beddington remembered one such occasion when the woodland mood suddenly shifted. One moment, he was admiring the beauty of a spring moonlit evening in the woods. Then, all of a sudden, I hadn't gone far when somehow it all changed. The moon still shone clear and I could see for miles, but somehow all that beauty had gone and there seemed to be some brightening all around. A big black yew tree I were approaching made I stop. I couldn't have walked under them low trailing branches if my life had depended on it. I just stood there and sweated. Then I turned and went back up the path with more than one glance over me shoulder. 
This account is redolent of a story Dennis Potter told about his father and an old man becoming increasingly panicked and fearful on a night in the forest when the night was as black and moody as only a night in the forest can be. And he attributed this to being something complex and unique to foresters that outsiders were rarely able to understand. As Potter wrote in his inimitable way, all the old forest stories, the tales told to children, the mining superstitions based upon isolation and history and religion welled out of them to create an old and unknowable fear. If you've ever explored the Forest of Dean, you'll know that it's the landscape with its relics of industry, chapels and more, much more than just trees and natural woodland landscape that bears witness to this history. It's a landscape marked in so many ways by its history of human activity. There's forestry, of course, decisions about what trees are planted where and which are felled. And as Andrew Taylor pointed out, there's the remains of railways that no longer run, the tracks long gone, but many of the old bridges and tunnels are still here. There's spoil heaps from the mines too, some huge, others quite small, slowly being disguised but not yet lost under colonising grass and trees and foxgloves. And fading remains of other industries, ironworks, chemical works, factories. And there's stone quarries too. Just the other day, I spoke to Harry Cole, who's got one of the quarries in the Bixlade Valley, Monument Quarry. And he was telling me about some of the remnants of that quarry's history. So in the one corner of my quarry is a red looking face with uh, uh, it's like a veneer you just got an inch of red stone and my predecessor Mervyn Bradley was said to said to me that that face was untouched and it's not in the record books but with from the spoil round here they've put up old millstones uh, half carved troughs and the practice pieces for the apprentices and you can see them written, you can see them practicing their big A's, big B's, little C's. And then you can also see the graveyard practice pieces and it says, here lieth, which adds that the age. So in the total, we reckon this quarry here predates the prehistory books, which are records back to 300 years. So that gives you a good date on the quarry being here for a long time, so. Okay, there's a bit of wind, so if we just back behind the door. So a lot of history in this quarry. Do you ever get the spooks at all? Do you ever, or or are you very comfortable here? I'm very comfortable here, and I I go right up the dark sometimes, and it never worries me. If anything, you've got to worry about more like the world ball than anything. So. And to make our imagining of these past places more real. There's even been an app created by a group of local volunteers to tell you what was once there and show you, using old photographs, what these sites looked like in their industrial heyday. It's called the Hidden Heritage app. Now, some of the marks in the landscape date back even to pre-Roman times. There's the scowl holes, collapsed caves and ancient iron mines close to the surface now exposed. The most famous being Puzzle Wood, its deep crevices, ferns and mosses are primeval looking. It's a visitor attraction today, and it's also a regular location for television and film shoots. 
There's another similar site of scowl holes called Devil's Chapel near Bream. Living nearby, Gloucestershire poet F.W. Harvey knew it well. He was involved in staging concerts there in the 1930s and he even wrote a comic opera set there. He wrote a marvellous poem published in 1926 about the site reflecting its long and often dark history, the ghosts of which continued to haunt it. In Devil's Chapel they dug the ore a thousand years ago and more, Earth's veins of gleaming metal showing like crusted blood first set a-glowing Phoenician faces, profiteers. No doubt they bought the toil and tears of old Silurian miners. Then came Rome with all her marching men, the conquering legions, then resounded those rocks with cries of slaves sore wounded, sword, whip and spear, drew British blood. So Labour's law at last held good, and of that dark and blood-soaked earth, daggers and armour came to birth. Yea, many a sword which cut a throat in far imperial Rome, where boat could sail, the ore of Dean was taken, and put to use, if but kind Bracken had covered all from sight what evil, born in that chapel of the devil, had ne'er been done? Tis now a walk for tourists. There shy lovers talk, but seldom after dusk. For, though love scorns not night's soft cloak, I trow, yet love and death are ill to pair. And murder haunts the forest there, and murdered men, though they go light, and show not to the mortal sight, and sound not in a lover's ear. Tap at the heart, and put cold fear into the blood. The sighing hiss of trees or ghosts make blasphemies of words, and poison love's warm kiss. Oh, forest trunks and great rocks riven, embroideries of moss make hues, varied and bright as morning dews, whose gobbled crystals can set free light's captive colours. Many a tree splinters the sunlight overhead. The path is softly carpeted with moss. Fully many a ferny grot beckons. So, like you, or like you not, build it on this grim-haunted spot. A chapel fine hath the devil got. Certain places, then, just like certain houses, offer Forrester Dean writers a location for memories of past events, past history, to intrude, sometimes with menace, upon the present, to haunt it. Harry Beddington was fascinated by this idea and thought the Forest of Dean was particularly well disposed to these hauntings. He mentions it in his 1961 book Forest of Dean Humour, when he wrote... I don't suppose there's a place in the country so crowded with conflicting memories and stories. The ghosts of them old happenings do still persist. It's these ideas that informed his poem, Quitchurch Quarry. But there's some spots for some reason it's better to leave clear. In spite of all the loveliness, those get a chill of fear. 
Zimmet to make the chicken pause, those veil a strong unease, and danger seems a lurking in them silent watching trees. My father always used to say that in such spots as these the memory of some evil deed were tangled in the leaves. Mid tell us about the quarry, which the villagers left clear, and no morn after nightfall would willingly go near. The ghosts of a bitter story were said to walk its gloom. Many had sworn they'd seen it at night at Vullamoon. In the poem, Harry Beddington has heard the stories of a murder that happened there, followed by a suicide. But one night, chasing after his dog, he sees the scenes of those events played out by ghostly figures. Watching, it becomes clear to Harry that there was a terrible miscarriage of justice. He later describes what he saw to the local parson, who says some prayers for the troubled souls, which seem to finally lay the spirits to rest. More unsettled spirits then, but clearly tied to events and locations in the landscape. Stuart shivered, turned to go back inside, and then he saw them, pale and formless in the pitch-black entrance to the mine a crowd of faces watching him with the moonlight glittering in their eyes. The ghosts of dead miners come to the surface to haunt him. In Louise Lawrence's 1983 young adult fiction novel The Dram Road, teenager Stuart escapes a dissolute life in the city after mugging a neighbour. He ends up in the Forest of Dean. On his first night, he shelters in a hut by the entrance to an old free mine, one of the small independent coal mines that still operate today in the Forest of Dean. The dram road of the title are the rails laid down for the drams, the coal carts, that come in and out of the mine. In his troubled state, the ghost he sees that first night terrifies him. But through the course of the book, with the care of the close-knit community near to the old mine, contact with nature he changes to become by the end the decent precious person he knew he was and it's the dram road and its spirits that first pushed him towards the people living nearby who would go on to help him turn his life around by the end of the book the ghosts of the dram road are not malevolent spirits but instead symbols of a community and lives lived in and deeply connected to the landscape the stones remembered everyone who'd ever walked there. Impressions of people and time. Long ago miners coming from the colliery. Roman legions marching to Kerwent. Celts hauling the monolithic stone to Cropper's Knoll. Dawn and himself with a basket of blackberries. It was not death the dram road remembered. It was life, people and events. A multitude of existences. The past present in the landscape, haunting it, talking to us, influencing us now, sometimes menacing, reminding us of a past that needs to be addressed, sometimes though, just as in the dram road, a reminder of many lives lived in the landscape. In 2008, academic Lisa Hill took a walk in the Forest of Dean with Ron Beard, local resident and member of the Forest of Dean Local History Society and she wrote about that walk in a fascinating paper published in 2013. It's called Archaeologies and Geographies of the Post-Industrial Past, Landscape, Memory 
and the spectral. Histories of the landscape unfolded as we walked, yet they also revealed a haunting sense of loss, a fragmented remembering and forgetting that was unsettled by ghosts from the past. For memory is born of strange and uncanny associations, inexplicable connections between times and places that erupt into the present without warning. Lisa's paper draws on philosophical ideas that have been developed within cultural geography. One of these is the notion of the spectral. This is the idea that our experience of the world is not quite as straightforward as we might think. There's something ghostly about it. Past, present and future of ourselves and places all interact to create our experience of the world around us. So evocative are the remnants of past industry in the landscape and Ron's memories of them, that Lisa herself experiences an intense moment of imagining what it must have once been like, so vivid that it verges on an hallucination. On the walk, Ron talks of his own relationship with the landscape growing up in it, the history of his family in the forest and beyond it, and the area's long history of industry and community life. All of these intermingle to create his sense of the forest as a place. For each of us then, our experience of a place is a mixture of what we see, the marks of history in the landscape, along with our own memories and personal histories and the stories we attach to places. So these are the ghosts that haunt us and our landscape just as much as the ones of local legend and oral tradition and the ones that populate forest literature. Lisa Hill describes it as the past erupting into the present. The past, then, is never safely in the past. And forest author Dennis Potter often talked about this very same thing. He was responding to accusations that many of his television plays set in the past were nostalgic. Now, he challenged this idea, saying that nostalgia puts things safely in the past. Instead, what he believed and felt his work reflected was that we know the past is suddenly standing smack in front of us, not behind us. It's jogging alongside you, he said. He went on, it's pulling at you, then suddenly standing, jabbering in front of you. Then you know that you are one piece with what you have been and what you will be. That doesn't, he said, permit nostalgia. The past, standing and jabbering in front of you, just like a ghost. Reading the Forest The Stories Behind the Stories Well, Jason, we've, we began this podcast by talking about this vast, vast literature about phenomenon in the forest, about ghosts, ghostly presence, haunted houses, woodlands. Uh, there's a whole plethora of books that deal with that. Personally, I'm not, I'm not a sort of believer in the paranormal my, myself, but I can see how, how it becomes so fascinating. I think there is something about the way that the history of the forest is is in the landscape, like Lisa Hill's getting at, there are these kind of ghostly presences of this history in in the forest. You go for a walk in the woods and you see the remains of, I don't know, when the Americans were here during the Second World War, you see, you know, remains of the old mines. And I think it they're so evocative 
and they make you start to think about the people who used to work there, who used to live there. And I think they just, I don't know, they lend themselves to these ghost stories. Have you had any um, supernatural experiences yourself, Roger? Have you ever seen a ghost? Well, I had an experience, and it's it's a really a, a modern digital ghost experience, but about the landscape. Jason, are you familiar with Google Earth? Yeah, yeah. Because I had an experience with Google Earth, and one that it took me a while to come to terms with. I had a very good friend. He was an old forest miner, and he used to have a habit of coming and standing outside his house. And that was because he liked to chat. He liked to have a conversation. So whenever you were passing, he'd pass the time of day and you'd exchange a story. And over the years, I became really fond of him. And he died. And it was a sad time. Um, he was somebody that, you know, I regarded as part of the landscape. One day, I decided that I would look at Google Earth and I would look at my landscape, my street. And sure enough, the camera comes down the road. It turns to the front of his house and who stood there looking at the camera but Don. Months after he'd gone, a spectral image there frozen in time. And of course, months later, I returned and... They'd revised Google Earth, the van had been round again, and Don was gone. But for that brief time, there was Don, still in the landscape, still where he stood, a digital ghost. So Jason, do you find the woodland makes you a little fearful? Do those dark trees sometimes make your spine tingle a little? I've got to be honest, they don't, Roger. I feel pretty comfortable, or I, I have done until recent years, felt pretty comfortable. As a teenager, I would walk back from my friend's house, you know, several miles away, through the woods at night. Occasionally, I get spooked for a moment when I'd hear something like a sheep cough in, in, in the undergrowth. That would um, cause me to pause for a moment. But really, I guess I've been playing in the woods since I was a little boy, so I feel really really at home and, and have slept out in the wood at night. However, in recent years, since the boar have been around, I'm a little bit more nervous in uh, going into the woods in, in, in the dead of night. I do tend to take a big stick with me. Well, that's an interesting thought, but I'll share with you a conversation I had with a, a forest ranger. And I was very interested in the modern day management of the forest and particularly the practice of clearing the trees either side of a track. And I said... Uh, what are you doing that for? And he said, because it makes the walk, the vista of the forest, more open. That makes it more attractive and people feel safer. And it struck me that perhaps we might just be taking away some of that haunting, some of that ghostliness. I'm Dr Jason Griffiths. And I'm Dr. Roger Deeks. Join us next time for another episode of The Stories Behind the Stories. The Reading the Forest podcast was a Reading the Forest production for Forester's Forest. The presenters were Jason Griffiths and Roger Deeks. Our thanks to Tiffany Murray, Andrew Taylor and Harry Cole. You also heard the voices of Keith Morgan, Anna Grimmett, Oscar Grimmett, Darren Hoskins and Rachel Griffiths. This podcast was made possible through the support of the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the University of Gloucestershire.